Well, this morning, friends, I'm wondering, have you ever found yourself in the unfun, uncomfortable place of waiting for something to arrive? Just earlier this week, I was sitting at my desk over at Purdue, and I realized, man, it is time for some lunch. And I had failed to pack my lunch with me that day. So I thought, you know what's really good and really fast? Jimmy John's. Have you ever noticed their, their, their logo is freaky fast? And so I was really hungry, so the freaky fast part did not seem to be as fast as I really wanted it to be because I was sitting in the break room talking to my coworkers as they were eating, and I thought, man, I am just stuck in between here, in between when I placed my order and the time that lunch was actually delivered. We're waiting for things to be delivered all the time, right? In our normal lives and in our lives of faith too. And in fact, the pages of scripture are filled with stories where God's people have been waiting for deliverance. They've endured this over and over and over again. Often what we find in scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, is stories where God's people are waiting to be delivered from the crushing weight of the empire. They're waiting to be delivered out of slavery when they're in Egypt. They're waiting to be delivered from the days of exile in Babylon. And in the New Testament times, God's people are waiting from, for deliverance from being under the heavy rule of the Roman Empire and the Roman arm. So in the midst of all that waiting for deliverance, is this feeling that we can all identify, right, with being in between. So this morning, I'd ask you to consider with me, when have you found yourself caught in between one place and the next? Whenever I think about traveling and being at the airport, it's kind of an in-between place, isn't it? You were just at your house earlier today, frantically packing, looking over that list of things you needed to be sure to add at the last minute, like your phone charger, which has gone MIA. You've been hunting for that water bottle so you won't be thirsty while you're on the plane. You're looking for that bottle of medicine that you needed to take this morning and then make sure you actually put it in your bag. And now you are on your way out the door on your way to the place that you're wanting to be in, whether that's the home of family or friends that you're traveling across country to see, maybe the exotic locale of your long-anticipated vacation, but here you are in the airport, juggling your carry-on baggage as you get through security, you're waiting at the gate for your boarding group to be called, you're sitting on the plane and the air finally kicks on, you're adjusting your reading material, making sure you have your headphones, fighting over the armrest with the person next to you. And everything in you is just ready to be done with this in-between time. Because you just want to be there already, right? At that destination that you have in mind. Well, it turns out there is a vocabulary word that describes this in-between time. I like to call them 50-cent words. They're not just worth a penny. They're worth a whole 50 cents. 
And this feeling of being in between is so universal. Whether or not we want to admit it, I want to make sure you know this word and encourage you to start using it. And the word is liminality. And liminality is defined as a state of transition between one stage and the next. In between here and there, between your daily life and vacation life. In between finishing up second grade and waiting for third grade to begin. In between the days when you're treated like a child and the days when you're treated more like a responsible adult. In between your first day on the job and the day you celebrate your retirement from that job. In between the day you receive the diagnosis and the day you learn if treatment was successful. All of these and more are in between times, all liminal spaces. So to sum up, liminality is whenever we find ourselves in the threshold in between what was and what is yet to come. What's so challenging to me about this word and this concept is the reality that all of us, we, we focus so much on the phases of either side of liminal spaces, we don't always give voice to what's happening when we're in between. Because this is not even a word that's in our common vernacular, is it? We don't even talk about being in between. I've decided this is something I want to adopt in my life and start talking about. Because in my experience, and perhaps you can identify with this as well, in-between times are just weird. They're uncomfortable. They're anxiety-producing. We don't always have the words to voice how we're feeling or how we're really doing. And that doesn't help when we run into all the lovely people in our lives, and they just want us to go ahead and arrive at whatever that next step is. Being in a liminal time can make us feel things like adrift and unclear and unanchored without clear purpose or direction. Maybe like we're failing at this thing called life somehow, and often it feels chaotic. I wonder if we even feel abandoned in our liminal times because our family often forgets that liminal spaces are part of life. Our friends who don't seem to have any trouble jumping from milestone to milestone without any space in between. Perhaps we even feel like God has abandoned us in times of no clear answers, in times of being in between. But what I'm wondering this morning is, what if these liminal times, these in-between spaces, can offer us something greater than those lessons in patience and waiting that we don't even really want anyways, right? What if all that feeling awkward and uncomfortable and unsuccessful is not really the final word whenever we find ourselves in between? What if we can finally stop berating ourselves as we're trying to figure out what we've done wrong for God to have abandoned us in this endless time of feeling stuck? What if, friends, in fact, 
God is up to something in the very midst of us being in between. Here's how Susan Beaumont, a writer and a thinker about the church, voices what these liminal times can feel like. She writes, liminal seasons are challenging and disorienting and unsettling. We strive to move forward with purpose and certainty, but instead we feel as though we're trudging through mud, moving away from something comfortable and known towards something that can't yet be known. She also gives us a word of hope. Liminal seasons are also exciting and innovative because the promise of a new beginning unleashes creative energy, potential, and passion. All truly great innovations are incubated in liminality. God's greatest work occurs in liminal space. And she's right. If we think about the stories that we read in Scripture, God does some incredible work in liminal spaces. And our Bible's filled with stories of people who encounter their liminal times, their in-between places, and then whose experience in the midst of that in-between dramatically impact who they become on the other side. They come out of their time of disorientation and confusion and they challenge and they are still saying things like this, our God is faithful, my God is loving kindness, and this is the God who sees me. I don't know about you, friends, but these are the exact kind of stories that we all need to be reminded of as we reorient our minds to this idea that it is precisely in those in-between times where God does God's greatest, and I'd add, most creative work. And there's so many places in here that we could turn to to talk about this this morning. Perhaps Jesus' death and resurrection being the pinnacle of all those examples. But today we turn to a continuing story that I know y'all started last week in Genesis 12, looking further down the line in the story of Abram and Sarah. Now, if you were here last week, you were probably reminded that in chapter 12, God called Abram and Sarah to go to a place that I will show you. Talk about a liminal space. No real definition of where they're going or how they'll get there, just a calling to go. And as you kept reading in chapter 12, you may have also read together about the covenant that God made with Abram, and God makes three particular and specific promises to Abram that I want to review very quickly. Number one, that Abram will have many descendants. That's in verse 2 of chapter 12 that Abram and his descendants will then inherit the land of Canaan, that's in verse 7, and also in verse 3, that they will be a blessing to the whole world. So this morning, we're going to move ahead a little bit into chapter 17 and read what happens next. This is from the New Revised Standard, and I begin with verse 1 of chapter 17. 
When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, or El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I'll make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you now, where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for a perpetual holding, and I will be their God. God said to Abraham, down in verse 15, As for Sarah, your wife, you will not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? Can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then down in chapter 18, beginning with verse 11. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. And after, again, there are promises given to her that she will have children. Sarah laughs to herself, saying, After I've grown old and my husband is old, shall I have pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Now, from where y'all were reading last week in chapter 12 to this week in 17 and 18, years have gone by. Abraham and Sarah have experienced a long season of in-between, a long season of liminal time between when the promises were first made and today there's still no delivery on those promises. There's been no progress in the category of descendants, which the other two promises, of course, hinge on. In fact, what we just read together from chapters 17 and 18 tell us Abraham was 100, and Sarah was 90, and yet children had still not been born. But here's God saying, oh yeah, this is going to happen within one year. And they laugh. And you know, I can't really blame them for their attitude, their reaction, because they have already been waiting for decades, 25 years, in fact, And in the pages between chapter 12 and where we started reading this morning, they have taken matters into their own hands because they, specifically Sarah, have been waiting for God to deliver them from the cultural and societal and familial shame of having no heir, of having no child. 
no son particularly. And she has endured suffering because of this. And they got really tired of waiting. So again, they took matters in their own hands. In chapter 15, Abraham figures, oh, it must be my servant Eleazar that's going to inherit everything from me and this promise from God. And God says, nope. Then in chapter 16, Sarah gives her maid Hagar to Abram as an additional wife, and Ishmael is born. But God does not extend God's promise to Ishmael, even though Abraham circumcises him. Then in 17, as we just read together, God clarifies, no, it's Sarah that's going to have a son, and that son is who will inherit this promise. And if we had continued reading uh, in verse 18 and following, we'd see that Abraham not only laughs, Abraham laughs so hard that he falls on his face, which means he doesn't believe God because, in fact, his immediate response is, oh, if you would just remember Ishmael. Or, in other words, could you just make Ishmael the one that's going to inherit the promise? Abraham does not seem to understand that Sarah is just as important an actor in this blessing as is the child who will one day inherit the blessing. So as we remember the promise of covenant made back in chapter 12 and then repeated and affirmed and look forward to the delivery of a son, which doesn't happen until chapter 21, by the way, we find laughter in between. But we know there's all kinds of different laughter, right? There's belly laughter. It's something so funny it brings tears to your eyes and you're gasping for breath. There's nervous laughter, too, when you're a little uncomfortable. There's the giggling laughter that you get late at night when you're feeling just the right kind of tired and suddenly everything is funny. We laugh when someone delivers an unexpected comment that just has you laughing delightedly out of the blue. But we know laughter's not always good laughter either, right? When we are laughed at by others because of the way we talk or dress or the idea that we had in that meeting. Cruel laughter of those who mock you for the way God created you, short or tall, and everything in between. When someone laughs when you're in the midst of deep pain, the scorning laugh of those who look down on you because you've not arrived at some threshold that they expected for you. So that leaves us with a question. What kind of laughter do we see here from Abraham and Sarah? And I want to know, why does God not comment on Abraham laughing, but does comment on Sarah laughing in chapter 18? I don't really know the answer to that, but I'm just curious. So as I'm thinking about this, friends, this kind of laughter is the absolute, unable to even consider this as a real possibility, the yeah right kind of laughter. Sarah does it, Abraham does it, so that he even falls down on the ground because he's laughing so hard. It's the laugh of utter disbelief. 
because they stopped waiting for deliverance a long time ago. Or at least they've stopped waiting for the delivery of a child into their family. They've stopped waiting for God's promises to actually be fulfilled. But I want us to think about this for a second. It's not just that they don't believe what God is telling them. They lack the imagination to believe what God is telling them. They completely lack the imagination that God can do anything. They laugh because they cannot imagine a scenario in which they'll be blessed with a baby at the ages of 190, respectively. They can't imagine Sarah getting pregnant now, which, for the record, I can't imagine that happening today either. Can you? It's completely outside the realm of what is possible. So why even dream? Why even imagine? Why believe that that could be possible? Because we're just going to be disappointed again. Friedrich Beekner, who's a, a well-known theologian and pastor, puts it this way. Sarah and her husband have had plenty of hard knocks in their time, and there were plenty more yet to come. But at that moment when God told them they'd better start dipping into their old age pensions for cash to build a nursery, the reason they laughed was that it was suddenly dawned on them that the wildest dreams they'd ever had hadn't been half wild enough. So it turns out God is big enough to act despite our disbelief. Obviously so, because a few chapters later, in 21, Isaac is born. Did you know that in Hebrew, Isaac's name means he laughs? God's not going to change God's mind about this plan just because Abraham and Sarah don't believe him. And when Isaac is finally delivered, Sarah and Abraham laugh a different kind of laugh. The laugh of pure delight and deep joy. So I'm wondering today about the in-between times that we find ourselves in. And I wonder if we're called to do a little bit more than just wait to be delivered. What if we're called to use our imaginations? What if we're called to dream and to consider what might be? To tenaciously hope. To consider that everything we read in Scripture about God and the kingdom of God might just be true. Friends, do you ever allow yourself to imagine, to laugh, to dream, to wonder? Do you make space in your life and in your conversations to imagine what could be? Do you ever dream about the future and what could be? Or do we spend all of our time lamenting what used to be instead. Walt Disney is someone who taught us a lot about imagination and dreaming, and he said this, laughter is timeless, imagination has no age, and dreams are forever. So what if, moving forward, instead of lamenting that the past is past, and stop trying to micromanage the present. In our in-between times, we could give ourselves the room to dream and to imagine and maybe even laugh. 
because we are called to continue to remember in an upside-down kingdom where God's ways are bigger than our own, we have to remember that we confess that we believe in a God that delivers on God's promises in ways that we can't anticipate fully. So in the in-between, we dream, we imagine, we laugh at the wildness of those dreams, we marvel at the work of God that we could never have anticipated, and we boldly take the next right step ahead of us once, of course, the Holy Spirit gives us that next step. So friends, it is my prayer for you individually and as a congregation that the 